Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hello and welcome to this episode on the first commandment. So here we are at the start of the Ten Commandments. So exciting. And it's doubly exciting because once we finish the Ten Commandments, we'll only have like a couple of episodes on prayer because that final part of the catechism is actually quite short. And then we'll be done. Isn't that crazy? We are nearly, well, we're not nearly at the end, but we're getting towards the end of the catechism. And this actually raises a question, which is what to do with the podcast after the catechism is done, because there are many things we could do. Like we could wrap it up because job done, or we could talk about other, you know, theological issues and questions that people have, or we could do interviews or stuff about saints, like really like the options are endless. And basically it comes down to what is the most useful for you. (laughs) So I would love to turn it over to you. I'd love to hear from you. Um, my The email address for this podcast and an Instagram link are in the show notes. So if you have any you know, thoughts or requests or things that you'd like to hear on the podcast, feel free to shoot me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Um, and that'll be really helpful as I kind of think and pray over the next few months about you know what to do once the catechism is done. Okay, now to the catechism. So before we start with the first commandment, a couple of points that are going to help us kind of frame the next sort of 10 or so episodes. First of all, every single one of the 10 commandments is ultimately a commandment to love. Ultimately, that's the one thing that we're called to do. That's our one job. So in Matthew 22, Jesus tells the Pharisees that the greatest in the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And Jesus is not kidding when he says that everything hangs off these two commandments. And we'll see it as we go through each of the Ten Commandments. We'll see that each one is just a different elaboration on that theme, right? The requirement to love. So the first three commandments teach us how to love God. And then the final seven teach us how to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, one other point that we need to make is that throughout these episodes on the commandments, we're going to be talking a lot about sin. (laughs) And it might get to the point where you're like, oh, far out, Caitlin, you're such a Debbie Downer listing all of these sins that we shouldn't commit. Okay, think of it this way. Imagine that you walked into a darkened room, right? It's completely pitch black and it's full of furniture. (laughs) When we talk about sin, when we say this is a sin, that's a sin, don't do that. That's kind of like feeling out where the walls and the furniture are in this darkened room so that you don't fall over and break your neck. (laughs) Because when it comes to following the commandments, loving God, there are really no limitations. So what the church does is say to us, "Okay, yes, go follow your path to heaven. But here is where the furniture is. Here's the stuff that you might want to skirt around. Here are the things that might trip you up along your way. These are the things that you should avoid on your journey to heaven. Okay. So when we talk about sin, it's not like a guilt thing. It's just a way of figuring out how to kind of navigate our way to heaven in the safest way possible. Okay, so today we're going to look at the first commandment. So the first commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 5, 6 to 9 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in the heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Okay, so that commandment is a bit chunky, but basically there are three key elements to it that we're going to break down in this episode. First of all, I am the Lord your God. So we're going to think about what does that statement mean for us and how should we respond to it? Secondly, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, so what does it mean to serve other gods? And finally, you shall not make for yourself an idol or a graven image. So we're going to think about what counts as an idol or a graven image. Okay, so I am the Lord your God. Now, this can sound like kind of just a purely factual statement, but when we think about it, certain obligations follow from that reality, right? We can't be passive in the face of the reality of God. So if God is the Lord, our God, then that means certain things for for us and for our lives. And Jesus summarizes what our response to this reality should be in Matthew 4.10, when he says, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So if there is an all-knowing, all-loving God who made us and loves us, then it makes sense that we should get to know him and love him and serve him in return. So the Roman Catechism, which is an older catechism that was written after the Council of Trent, says that our response to God should be one of faith, hope, and love. Those three cardinal virtues. It says, God is constant, unchangeable, faithful, and just without any evil. It follows that we must necessarily accept his words and have complete faith in him. He's almighty, merciful. Who could not place all hope in him? Who could not love him when contemplating the treasures of goodness and love he has poured out on us? Okay, so to know God is to love him, to believe in him, and to hope in him. Now, the Catechism outlines the various ways that we might sin against the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. So sins against faith include, first of all, voluntary doubt. So this is when you disregard or refuse to hold as true what God has revealed. So in other words, it's like when you say, look, I kind of know what's true, but nah, I'm going to do my own thing. Now, this is different from involuntary doubt. So involuntary doubt, the catechism describes as hesitation in believing and difficulty in overcoming objections. So involuntary doubt isn't a sin because it's not deliberate. It's okay to wrestle with things and try to figure out what's true. However, if I willingly cultivate those hesitations or difficulties, if I hold on to my objections and I refuse to let them go and I don't seek answers, then that can become voluntary doubt or what the catechism refers to as incredulity. And in that situation, I'm actually culpable for that sin. Okay, and then there's the sin of heresy, which is the obstinate post-baptismal denial of some truth which must be believed. So it basically is when you're openly, consistently denying or contradicting one of the truths of the faith. So for instance, if I, as a baptized Catholic, wrote a book about how Jesus isn't really present in the Eucharist and I refuse to change my opinion on that, then that would be heresy. Okay, and then we have the sin of apostasy, which is the total repudiation of the Christian faith. So in other words, it's not like you just disagree with one point. You actually have rejected all of Christianity. 
And then finally, we have schism, which is when you break away from communion with the church. So kind of like the Protestant Reformation. Now, it is important to emphasize that a person is only culpable for these sins against faith when they commit them deliberately. And this is true of all sin, but it's particularly important to emphasize here because there are many, many people who have rejected the Christian faith out of ignorance or because of something that they don't have any control over. So Fulton Sheen has this fantastic quote where he says, there are not 100 people in the United States who hate the Catholic Church, but there are millions who hate what they wrongly perceive the Catholic Church to be. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, you might hear someone saying something a bit heretical or they might have doubts about their faith and they, or they might even hate Christianity. Christianity. And obviously these are objectively bad things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that person is actually culpable for a serious sin. So we can't judge the state of someone's soul if they're not, you know, a Christian. Although of course we should try to help them overcome those doubts and understand the truth. Now, when it comes to hope, the virtue of hope, there are two key ways that we can sin against this virtue. They are despair and presumption. And these are like two opposite sides of a coin. Despair is when you decide that you cannot possibly be forgiven for the sins that you've committed. So this is the sin of Judas, that idea that like, I'm so bad that God could never forgive me for my sins. And actually, when we're experiencing this, it can actually feel almost like a kind of humility, right? Like something virtuous that, you know, I'm just acknowledging how terrible I am. But the problem with this attitude is that it throws the mercy of God back in his face. It's like a slap in the face. God is there wanting to forgive us and where they're being like, no, no, sorry, no, I'm too bad, you can't. And God's like, please, I want to forgive you. And we're like, no, no, you can't, okay. And we know how you know frustrating and upsetting this is when it happens to us, right? Like if you've ever had a situation where a friend has done something wrong and then they apologize to you and you say to them, yes, thank you for apologizing, I forgive you. And then they just keep apologizing <laughs> and like they keep going on and on and on about how bad they feel and how terrible they are. And it kind of gets to a point where it's insulting. You're like, I, do you not? believe me like I, I forgive you like please accept my love and forgiveness um, so we can do the same thing to God and that's the sin of despair and then the flip side of that coin is presumption so we can be presumptuous in two ways either by presuming on our own capacities or by presuming on God's mercy so when I presume on my own capacities, that's like, you know, when you're helping a little kid ride a bike for the first time and you're sort of running along behind them, holding on to the back of the bike and the kid starts to get quite confident because the bike is going and they're staying upright and they're like, okay, great, I can do it. And they start saying to you, you know, let go, let go. I can do it on my own. And you're there holding the bike and thinking, I, mate, I can feel that I'm keeping you balanced. You think that you're riding this bike, but if I let go, you are going to instantly face plant. And that is exactly what happens. So sometimes that can happen to us, right, with God, where things are going pretty well and I'm being a pretty good person and life's pretty good. And I start to think, yeah, actually, I don't know if I need God's help. Like, I think I can just do this myself now. And maybe we sort of start to pray a little bit less or we stop asking for God's help with things because we don't feel like we need it so much. Okay, that is the sin of presumption. And what we're forgetting in those moments is that we are big dum-dums and that God is the one actually holding everything together. Now, the other way that we can be presumptuous is when we take advantage of God's mercy and help. So the Catechism in Point 2092 talks about trying to obtain forgiveness without conversion 
conversion and glory without merit. So it's like when you think, oh, you know, I'll just commit this sin and then I'll just go to confession and God will forgive me and it'll all be fine. Or when you're like, oh, I'm just going to do this really reckless thing or this dumb thing. And it's okay because I know that God will always look after me. And, you know, you're not wrong. Like God will always love you and he will always forgive you and always look after you. But when we take advantage of that, it's like a lack of love. You know, when you like you're mean to one of your siblings because you know that you can get away with it or, you know, you leave dishes in the sink because you know that if you do that and you leave them for long enough, mom or dad will eventually wash them for you. Like, of course, our siblings love us. And of course, mom and dad will always help us out. But if we take advantage of that and use it as kind of an an excuse to do whatever we like, obviously that becomes a lack of love. Okay, so we've talked about sins against faith and hope. And now let's talk about sins against charity or love of God. We can think of sins against charity as sitting along a spectrum. Now, at one end of the spectrum, we have indifference. So that's when, you know, it's not that we don't love God. It's just that like, I'm being a bit passive in my relationship with him. So he's there, but he's not a huge part of my life. And then there's ingratitude, which is when, you know, I just stop acknowledging or even reflecting on God's goodness or the things that he's done for me. And then a little further along, we have lukewarmness. The Catechism defines lukewarmness as hesitation or negligence in responding to divine love. So lukewarmness is when that kind of indifference to God starts to become more active. I actually start to really resist him. So maybe I'm, you know, praying less and less and I'm going to mass, but I'm not really fully present. It's like I'm sort of leaning away from God. And then one step further, we have something called acedia or spiritual sloth. So this is when we actually start to actively dislike spiritual things. And this is a consequence of having neglected our relationship with God for so long. So I start to feel like I actually don't want to go to mass or I don't want to pray. I don't want to talk to God. It's kind of like, you know, when you fall out of the habit of exercising, like when you're in the habit and you're in the rhythm, it's great. And you're like, yeah, I know it's good for me and it's awesome. But when you stop exercising for, you know, say a few months and then you think, oh, I've got to get back into it. The idea of going to the gym is just like makes you feel so depressed. Right. And that can happen in our relationship with God when we neglect him for long enough. And then, of course, finally, at the the far end of this spectrum is active hatred for God. Now, what we can see here is that hatred for God doesn't come out of nowhere, you know. It's actually the end point of a long slide away from God that begins with indifference and lukewarmness. So that's why we have to be so careful to avoid even those small sins against love. Okay, so these are all ways that we can fail to have faith, hope and love for God. But what are some ways that we can actually fulfill this commandment to love and serve God? So point 2095 of the Catechism talks about the virtue of religion. So the virtue of religion is when we render to God what we as creatures owe to him in all justice. So what do we owe to God as his creatures? The Catechism lists four key things that we owe to God. Adoration, prayer, sacrifice and promises or vows. So adoration means acknowledging our own nothingness in front of God and the greatness of God and offering our love and our gratitude to him for everything he's done. 
prayer refers to speaking to God, lifting our minds and our hearts to him. Now, this one is absolutely indispensable for the spiritual life. I mean, you think about how hard it is to sustain a relationship with another human being if we never speak to them. And it's the same with God. We actually have to connect with him heart to heart. And then sacrifice. Now, this is an interesting one because as Christians, we know that God, I mean, he makes it very clear in both the Old and New Testaments that he does not like empty sacrifices. We also know that the only perfect sacrifice is Christ's death on the cross. So hearing all of that, we might think, okay, well, then why does the church tell us to make sacrifices? Well, If you remember in earlier episodes, we talked a lot about how baptized Christians are part of the one body of Christ. And what this means is that really anything that we do and that we experience, so our sufferings, our joys, the things that we go without, they can all be united in our hearts with Christ on the cross and offered to God as part of that one perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And in particular, we can do this in the mass because that's when the sacrifice of the cross becomes truly present to us. And then finally, we have promises and vows. So we make promises to God in sacraments like baptism, confirmation, matrimony, and holy orders. And the Catechism in point 2101 adds that out of personal devotion, the Christian may also promise to God this action, that prayer, this almsgiving, that pilgrimage, and so forth. And it goes on to say that fidelity to promises made to God is a sign of the respect owed to the divine majesty and of love for a faithful God. So we think about how important it is to keep a promise to a friend or to someone that we love. And then we times that by infinity. And that is how important it is to keep the promises that we make to God. Now, vows are even more serious than a promise. When you make a vow, you consecrate something or someone to God. You kind of place yourself under an obligation to him. And of course, the place where we most commonly see people making vows to God is in the religious life. Okay, so all of the above (laughs) covers the first part of that commandment. I am the Lord, your God. If there is a God who loves us, okay, who has all of those attributes that we talked about in the first couple of episodes of this podcast, if that God exists and he loves us and he created us, then we are obliged to respond to him with faith, hope, and love. And we're obliged to offer him our love, our prayer, our sacrifice, and we're obliged to keep any promises that we make to him. Now, The first commandment goes on to say, you shall have no other gods before me. So what does that mean? What does it mean to worship other gods? Now, in one sense, there's a kind of obvious answer to that. Like we look at, you know, the people in the Old Testament who were worshiping a golden calf and we're like, okay, well, that's pretty obviously wrong. But we shouldn't fall into the trap of thinking that I don't have to worry about that because I'm not worshipping a cow statue. The catechism says that man commits idolatry whenever he honours and reveres a creature in place of God, whether this be gods or demons or power, pleasure, race, ancestors, the state, money, etc. So basically, whenever we put anything or anyone ahead of God, then we're committing the sin of idolatry. So we can think, you know, for ourselves, what is the thing 
that is number one in my life. Like, honestly, when push comes to shove, what is really, truly at the center of my life? Is it God or is it something else? You know, is it social media or my career or my hobbies or my friends? There's this great um, Sherlock Holmes story called A Scandal in Bohemia. And there's this point where Holmes is trying to figure out where someone has hidden something that is really precious to them in their house. So he just like starts a fire (laughs) because he knows that when someone hears the cry of fire, the first thing that they do is that they look to the thing that is most precious to them. So we can think of that ourselves, right? If I heard the cry of fire, you know, literally or metaphorically, so if I were in an emergency situation or I was on my deathbed, where would my mind go? What would I think of? And that can give us a good idea of what it is that we truly worship. But aside from idolatry, there are also other ways that we can have false gods in our lives. One is through superstition. So the catechism in point 2111 says that superstition is the deviation of religious feeling and practices. So basically, it's when we attribute a kind of spiritual power to material things and we treat those things like they have that power. So, for instance, if we have like good luck charms or good luck rituals, I mean, look, we shouldn't get scrupulous about it. Like sometimes we have a a lucky item that we just have for fun and it doesn't really mean anything. Like I have a pair of lucky Shakespeare socks (laughs) that I wear every time I have to give a talk on Shakespeare. And that's just something fun that I like doing. But if I were to start thinking, oh, my Shakespeare socks are magic. And if I don't wear my Shakespeare socks, you know, to this conference, then my paper is going to go really badly or whatever. Okay, that's when there starts to be a problem, because now I'm actually assuming that there is genuinely some power in my socks (laughs) to change the outcome of, you know, events in my life. Or, you know, we can think of something like amulets or crystals. Like at the moment, crystals are a huge thing, which I do not understand. I don't understand the crystal thing, but they seem to be everywhere at the moment. And I think it's one thing to, you know, like crystals because you think that they're pretty. That's whatever. That's fine. But another thing is to genuinely believe that this rock is actually going to have some kind of effect on my life. Okay, that's when you're getting into dangerous territory. Now, the catechism also makes a really interesting point. It says that superstition can even affect the worship we offer the true God. So in other words, even the good aspects of living my faith can become superstitions if I put emphasis on the action or the item as having some sort of inherent power instead of just being a vessel for God's power. So, for example, you know how in pop culture we often see that idea that a cross will keep you safe from vampires? (laughs) Okay, that's a really good example of a superstition, right? A cross itself doesn't have some sort of inherent power to ward off evil. The thing that's powerful is the prayer that you make and the power of God that is sort of drawn down through that prayer. That's what's going to keep you safe. So you just remember that next time you encounter a vampire, okay? (laughs) I mean, okay, that's a frivolous example, but it is something that can genuinely affect us in our spiritual life. It's really easy to do, actually, to start to think that, you know, the sign of the cross or my rosary beads or my holy water, they're kind of like magical, right? They'll keep me safe from evil. But actually, we can never lose sight of the fact that those things are just like signs and vessels and channels of God's grace. It is always and only ever God who has power. Okay, and then a step up from superstition, we have divination and magic. So the catechism says that consulting horoscopes, astrology, 
palm reading, interpretation of omens, clairvoyance, and recourse to mediums all conceal a desire for power over time, history, and other human beings. They contradict the honor, respect, and loving fear that we owe to God alone. So basically, these practices, which again, have actually become pretty big in the last few years, which is surprising to me. I don't understand how people can take horoscopes seriously, but apparently they do. And the problem with these practices is that they are ways of trying to take power from God, right? To be in control of things that only God is in control of. And look, not to get all spooky on you, but really we shouldn't underestimate the danger of messing with that stuff. It can seem really sort of harmless on a superficial level, but actually, I mean, you only have to listen to like an interview with an exorcist for like two minutes to be like, oh my gosh, okay, (laughs) run, run away from Ouija boards and tarot cards and mediums, etc. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Okay. So we should be really, really careful with that stuff and just avoid it altogether. Okay, so what are some other ways that we can sin against this commandment to love and serve God and God alone? Well, one of the ways is through irreligion. So irreligion covers three things, tempting God, sacrilege, and simony. So what do those words mean? Okay, tempting God is just when we do something really dumb or reckless or sinful in order to test God. And obviously there are like serious ways that we could fall into this sin. So if I was to like, you know, jump off something and be like, God, catch me. Okay, that's seriously tempting God. We should not do that. But we can also tempt God, not just by being physically reckless, but also by being spiritually reckless and expecting him to save us. So I remember when I was like 21 (laughs) and I really liked this guy and I knew that I should not date him. I knew that he wasn't a good guy for me. I had thought about it. I prayed about it and I knew it was wrong. And I remember going to a retreat and my like resolution after the retreat was like, okay, I'm not going to date this guy. And literally that evening I went to a party that I, where I knew he would be there and I knew that we would be hanging out. I knew it would make things harder, but I was like, well, you know, if God really doesn't want me to date this guy, then he'll make sure that, you know, this guy isn't at the party. And like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's, that's testing God. That's not fair. You can't force God to try to take control of something that actually you have total freedom to control. It's like the spiritual equivalent of stepping off a building and being like, God, catch me. Okay, and then sacrilege refers to profaning or treating unworthily the sacraments and other liturgical actions, as well as persons, things, or places consecrated to God. Now, Obviously, again, there are particularly grave examples of sacrilege, like when people mistreat the Eucharist, which I don't even want to talk about because it will make me cry. But we can also mistreat the things of God, even in small ways in our own lives, when we don't approach the sacraments or holy things with reverence. So, for instance, if I'm, you know, rocking up to Sunday Mass in my pajamas <laughs> and I haven't brushed my hair and I'm sitting in the pew with my arms kind of looped around the back of the seat like I'm on a couch, okay, in that situation, I am really not giving an appropriate degree of reverence to the Mass. And then finally, simony refers to the buying and selling of religious things. And this comes from the Acts of the Apostles, where a guy called Simon the Magician tried to buy the apostles' power off them. And I got to say, I have always felt a little bit bad for that Simon guy. I mean, can you imagine doing something so uniquely stupid (laughs) that they name a sin after you? (laughs) Like, that's your legacy to the world. So bad. But yeah, so an example of simony would be if you were selling blessings or selling prayers or an item like rosary beads or a crucifix that has been blessed. 
Okay, and we can see why this would be wrong, right? Because spiritual goods should always be available to everyone. And then the final way that we can have false gods in our lives is through atheism and agnosticism. Now, when we say atheism and agnosticism, we're not saying that it's a sin to be, you know, genuinely unsure and searching for the truth. Okay, it's also not a sin to be ignorant of God through no fault of your own. It's okay to be grappling and seeking and and trying to find the truth. What the catechism is referring to here is a kind of deliberate intellectual laziness, Right. An attitude of like, oh, yeah, you know, maybe there's a God. I think that maybe there might be, but I kind of don't care and I'm not really going to try to figure it out. Okay, in a situation like that, you're actually making a deliberate decision not to seek the truth. Okay, now before we wrap up this episode, let's take a look at the third and final part of this first commandment. It says, you shall not make for yourself an idol. So no graven images allowed. Now, This raises the question of the images that we have in the Catholic Church of Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the saints and angels, etc. And this is a bit of a point of division between Catholics and Protestants. For Protestants, icons of saints and angels are a form of idolatry. But we need to bear in mind that in the Old Testament, yes, God says don't make a graven image, but he very soon afterwards commands, you know, his people to build the Ark of the Covenant with the two massive gold angel statues on either side of it. He also commands Moses to make a bronze serpent. Okay. So it's not that God has a problem with icons and images per se. The problem was that people were worshiping images and statues and idols as if they were gods. Now, If that's what Catholics were doing when we, you know, prayed in front of a statue or an image, that would obviously be a big problem. But (laughs) luckily, that's not what we're doing. It's more like, okay, you know how in our own lives, we often carry around photos of the people that we love and we might look at those photos and it helps us to think of those people. So it's the same with religious images. Thomas Aquinas has this great quote about religious images. He says, religious worship is not directed to images in themselves, but to God incarnate. The movement towards the image does not terminate in it as an image, but tends toward that whose image it is. So it makes me think of, you know, when someone calls you on WhatsApp and their face comes up when you're talking to them on the screen, like if you've got them on speakerphone and their photo is there and you're looking at the photo while you're talking to them, right? It's not that I actually think that, you know, my sister is in the phone (laughs) and that like that's, that's actually her when I look at the image. It's just that the image helps me to, you know, visualize and think of and turn my heart towards the person that I'm talking to. So when I look at a photo of Mary on my desk or when I, you know, um, say a prayer in front of a cross or whatever, I obviously don't actually think that in that moment, you know, Mary is in the picture or or I'm worshipping the cross as if it's actually Jesus. It's just that those images turn my mind and my heart towards God and towards, you know, the people who are in heaven. Okay, so... That is the first commandment. That's all we've got time for today. Next episode, surprise, surprise, we're going to start talking about the second commandment. Woohoo! I can't wait. Okay, have a fantastic fortnight and I'll talk to you later. Bye.